Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature actor, comedian, director, playwright, and screenwriter, Elaine May. And she may be one of the most important Broadway and Hollywood stars you've never heard of, but she matters a great deal. In 2019, the New York Times wrote a long appreciation of her, in which they referred to her ability to, quote, fuse verbal and physical comedy as possibly singular, and called her a, quote, criminally underappreciated filmmaker. Consider that May began her career on stage doing improvised comedy with Mike Nichols in the early 1950s, helped found a comedy troupe that became the iconic Second City Improv in Chicago, became wildly famous on Broadway in the 60s, made four very important films in the 70s, contributed to countless films as a writer, and has had over 10 plays produced as a playwright, many on Broadway. She is considered by many a comedic genius, who has not been taken seriously enough, and that may purely be because she is a woman. This is certainly an opinion held by the New York Times movie critic Manola Dargis. In 2013, President Barack Obama awarded May a National Medal of Arts, and I have to think this award was an attempt to correct the record of her career. This talk is basically a master class in how to write comedy from a living legend. It's also laugh-out-loud funny, so if you're driving right now, be careful out there. Oh, and one final note. In 2019, at the age of 86, not only did New York's Film Forum pay tribute to her, but she was starring in the critically acclaimed Broadway play, The Waverly Gallery. Here's May. I have all these vaguely organized notes, which I'm going to have to refer to because... My lecture last night really basically consisted of, of my telling the audience why I couldn't lecture on the art of writing comedy. But, and, and some of the things I said last night were, gee, uh, it's hard, and ooh. But tonight, <laughs> having gone through last night and, and maybe getting a, a couple of insights, I'm, I'm going to be able to lecture much better on why you can't lecture on how to write comedy. I, I always had planned, because this is a literary evening and, and I wanted to do something literary, to, to tell you something that I sort of just found out. And I wonder if you know that all the poems of Emily Dickinson Perhaps she was the wrong poet to choose for this. <laughs> All the poems of Emily Dickinson can be sung aloud to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas. <laughs> and, I mean, this is pretty thrilling to find out. Um, and um, do, do you, does anybody know any of the poems of Emily Dickinson? You're just laughing at her, just at random? But at any rate, what I, what I don't really know how to do is carry a tune, so do, if you would hum the Yellow Rose of Texas, I, I will actually sing some of her poems. Um, now, now you, you, just sing it loud, and do it when I say go so we can do Let me hear how loud you'll sing, please. The, mm -hmm. Fantastic. This is, this is good. Okay, all right. All right. Now, I'm going to say go and we'll start together. One, two, three, go. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And so, <laughs> I, I, 
I, I could finish my lecture with this book, but... All right, now, now I'm, I'm kind of postponing the part where I talk about the art of writing comedy <laughs> because it's, it's very hard to say <laughs> what comedy is, except it's when, when you laugh, uh, when it's, uh, something is funny. So I, for example, consider myself an absolute expert on nutrition. I, I can tell you about fat grams and and vitamins and what they do because I was a smoker. And I thought, I'll never give up smoking, but if I can just learn everything that's right to eat, perhaps I'll live. So I, <laughs> I, I, I really studied food and everything to eat, and then I gave up smoking. But I knew so much that I could never again eat anything I liked. And I, I will actually fight with people who come to me and say, you know, I eat six grapes a day, and then I eat bread in the afternoon, and then I just eat ketchup, and then I, whatever it is they eat, and I've lost weight and my blood pressure is down, etc. I, I will argue with them, but there's no way to prove it. There's no way to prove anything about nutrition, as we know from the changing theories. But you can immediately prove comedy because if nobody laughs, it isn't funny. So then the question is, which I'm going to propose that you think about, is, is a comedy that, that you see an old movie that was really funny when you saw it, and isn't funny anymore? Is it still a comedy? If, if you read Rabelais with all those jokes about forgive me farting, and people, and whenever, when it was written, I think he's a classic master, and it really seems not funny, and it's a classic. And, and there are jokes that you hear that people thought were terribly funny, probably at some point, boy, there's a chicken across the road, must have laid him in the aisles, but it's not funny. So if it's not funny, is it comedy? I mean, if a joke falls in the forest, and no one left. <laughs> and... And, and one of the reasons it's so hard to say what comedy is is because, you know, it's sort of one man's comedy. I mean, it's, it's, it's only when you laugh. And in order to demonstrate this, I'm going to tell a joke. And I, I, I don't really do this well. I mean, I don't tell jokes well, and I don't, I don't remember jokes. But I'm telling this joke for a point, so... So it's a whole different thing, I think. And here's, oh, here's the joke. Um, an old couple goes to a fertility doctor, and they say, you know, we've, we've heard about this woman who's, she's 63 years old, and she's had a baby, and we're an old couple, and we've had our children, and they're grown up, but we, we think we know how to love, we think we're more mature, we, we can offer them a good home, and we'd like to try. And the doctor says, well, I mean, I, it's in an experimental stage. It sounds exciting. He said, you know, first I'll really have to examine you. I will have to do an analysis of your sperm. So I'm going to give you this jar, and tomorrow come back with a sample. And the next day the guy comes back, and he says, doctor, I, <laughs> I tried with my right hand. I tried with my left hand. My wife tried with her right hand. She tried with her left hand. She tried with her teeth in. She tried with her teeth out. We just couldn't open the jar. So the question is, if no one laughed at that, and there are probably a crowd in Philadelphia that, where this would just lay there, <laughs> would it be funny? My favorite joke is really dumb. I mean, this is really, it's a Henny Youngman joke. It's an old joke. It's truly stupid, but I'll tell it to you. Um, and, it's, and I don't know why I laugh at it. It goes, it's very short. 
He was bow-legged, she was knock-kneed. When they stood together, they spelled ox. <laughs> I, I have but no idea why that's funny. So to, to continue on with this, with this idea of why things are funny, Steve Allen did a show, took over for Johnny Carson some years ago. He invited on his show, he said, tonight on, on our show, I have with us a, a guest from the Polish Anti-Defamation League. And he said, you know, I hear Polish jokes told all the time. He said, and I, I, I think if those same jokes were told about black people, or, or Jews. I mean, there would be, really, people would be outraged. He said, what, what is funny about, about who, who wears a cloak and rides a pig, Lawrence of Poland? <laughs> the, the audience does sort of this. They, they're with him, and they agree with him, and they're sort of outraged for him, but they laugh. And they look really horrified. And he says, this is, you know, there are Polish children, he says, who hear this about, about their parents. You think it's funny to describe the Polish mafia as guys who make you an offer you won't understand? <laughs> so, <laughs> he continues like this for quite a while, and the audience is helpless. And they're, and they're with him. They, they, they sympathize. They agree with him. And he finally rises and stalks off. And it turns out that he's, he's not really a guy from the Polish Anti-Defamation League. He's really a, a guy who actually made a movie called Is There Sex After Death? And he's a, a practical joker. And, he, and Steve Allen has brought him on the show to make a point about what, what, is, what will soon be called, from, from the time I saw this political correctness. And his point, I guess, is that you can't help it, but some things strike you funny. So years and years later, when political correctness is sort of in full swing, these, um, these abortion doctors were killed, if, if you recall. It wasn't that long ago. And I was at a dinner party, and... Uh, there's a guy there who was a pro-lifer, nice guy. There were, there were, you know, there was a big argument about it. And arguments now are very ritualized. I mean, they're sort of everything you've just heard people argue about on a news show. So some people are arguing that one was, I mean, they're arguing set arguments. And the guy says, the pro-lifer says, look, this is terrible. I don't condone violence. And I think this was an awful thing to do. Uh, but in the eyes of this guy, uh, the guy who shot the doctor, this doctor was a murderer. And he was murdering innocent fetuses. And I said, but I said, that seems ridiculous because the doctor was just doing his job and this woman can go to another doctor. If you really want to stop abortion, why not kill the mothers? And in, in the really cold pause that followed, I said, because I know what you're going to say, if you kill the mothers, you'll kill the fetuses. But you know, they're going to kill the fetuses anyway. They're going to go down with the ship. So why not do it this way and really teach people a lesson? And it was, it, it, it was, it was a bad night. It was, I... People, needless to say, that I never saw again. But, but years later, I, I wrote the script of The Birdcage. And I, probably you all know what it's about. It's Kajafo. So, so there's a, a scene, I'm writing it, and there's a scene in which this gay couple uh, are going to fool this right-wing senator into thinking that they're a heterosexual couple, and one of the guys is dressed as a woman, and he's a right-winger, and it's their son's marriage, and they're going to be future in-laws, and she's... And I thought, I'm, I'm going to put this scene in during the dinner party. 
I'm just going to put it in verbatim, and I put it in. I have the senator say, you know, they say, I'm not for this, I don't condone this, but I, they're murderers and in their eyes, and then the, and she says, she says, well, why not kill the mother, she says. I mean, they'll go down with the ship. And I write the scene and I send it in, and the studio calls and says, you know, Elaine, <laughs> this is really going to offend people. I mean, this is murder and abortion. And I said, this, this is a story about, you know, two homosexuals who live together and raise a son. It's going to offend people anyway. We might as well. <laughs> so, so they, they're really a good studio and they agree. They say, but it, here's the deal. If people rise and walk out of the screenings, I mean, if it really hurts the movie, I said, I'll take it out. Without question, I'll remove it. So you all saw the movie. I bet you don't remember the scene. Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed that scene. And I, I was thinking about this and thinking about why and what it had to do with the art of writing comedy because I wanted to tie it up. And I, I realized, I, I think I realized, now I could be wrong because this is really, I haven't thought about this, is that it's because it had to do with, with having dinner go well. I mean, because because it was a scene that really had to do with not just becoming totally humiliated. With, it, it was a scene that had to do with some small social ritual that's terribly important. So my, I don't know if it's an insight, but my, my thought is that that kind of is, is how, is, you can get away with a lot in comedy, and that's kind of how. Because you deal with, or I deal at any rate, because there's all kinds of comedy, very ordinary things, which is probably really what concerns people the most. In the original Kaja Faux, the guy who was the respectable Frenchman, the, some minister or something or other, is put into a white dress because he has to escape, as in, as in our movie, he has to escape outside with the, with the other gay people. And he puts the dress on and he looks in the mirror and he says, oh my God, I knew I looked fat and white. Because, and it was a wonderful line, because of course, when you come right down to it, I mean, it's, it's tricky to be gay and to be perverse and all like that, but to look fat. <laughs> At any rate, I, I thought I would, I would try to give some examples of the difference between a, a comedy and, and a drama or, or a regular movie. And, and a comedy is just sort of more like life. You know, in, in a comedy, in a, in a comedy when you, you meet a guy, and in a drama you meet a guy, but in a drama you meet a guy and he likes you and you like him and you know it's wrong, but you take him to your apartment and you have sex with him and you break your heart or whatever. But in life, as in a comedy, you meet a guy, you like him a lot, but you didn't expect to meet him so your underwear doesn't match your bras ragged. There's a nail polish on your pantyhose so that they don't run. And you, you don't take him to your apartment that fast. You, you try to postpone the moment when you can sort of dress up for it. And it's the same problem with a guy. Because a guy in a movie, you know, in a, in a romantic, dramatic movie, is, he's got a girl in a, in a room and he's tearing her clothes up and he's got that look on his face, you know, the... That, that look they get in movies when they tear your clothes off. Sort of, <laughs> and it's dark, and they, he tears her clothes off, and they know it's wrong, but they have sex, and he leaves her, or she doesn't, and it's, it's a dramatic movie. But in, in life, as in a comedy, he does have that look on his face, and he's tearing her clothes off, and it is dark, and you do hear her say, can I help you undo that? <laughs> and you do hear him say, no, I can, I can get it. <laughs> and she does say, it's a Warner's bra and it hooks in the front. <laughs> and, <laughs> so that it becomes, it, and it's almost the difference. It's the hitch. It's, it's, it's as in as in tragedy, there's, there's the fatal flaw. This is just sort of the flaw. It, 
I, did, did a lot of you see the English patient? You did, really? But I only saw some of the English patient. And, and as a person who writes comedy, if I had, if I had to write that, I, <laughs> I would simply think, here, here's this nurse with this burn victim patient who's paraplegic. And she takes him to this lonely farmhouse, and there's no one around, and she puts him on the second floor. <laughs> and then she goes down to wash her hair. And in the movie, she washes her hair, and a guy comes, and there's a flashback. And, but in my movie, the moment she got her hair wet, she would hear, nurse? <laughs> could, could you? The sheets. The, you know, and... and, and, and I, I would have to restrain myself because I think it's tasteless, but what about the bedpan situation? <laughs> what about, do you know what it's like to live, to have two floors, period, to, to forget your gloves on the second floor? It's the end of the world to have to run up and downstairs. So, but, but the, the, the English patient is, is a romance. It's a true romance, and I think Probably that's what a romance is. A romance means it can't happen. It just <laughs> never happened that way, but my way, it would. Um, are, are there writers here tonight? There, there are. I, I can't see you. I can't hear you. And, but. I suppose it's too much to ask that there are actually writers who write comedies. No. But anyway, <laughs> if there were, I could help you out. Because you can take almost any really tragic situation and simply by dealing with it the way you would in life, you can turn it into a, at least amusing, a comedy. You, you don't even have to be funny. You just have to be accurate. Um, and, and you have to be able to perhaps look at an existing comedy and see the details of that with a tilt. So, for example, I read Hamlet, and I always think that Hamlet seems a little stoned. He's, you know, he's, he's, been, he's 30, and he's still in college. And he's got two not brilliant guys, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are his buddies. And he doesn't want to leave college. He doesn't want to come home. He wants to stay in college. And he's, and, and he's making scenes, and he's seeing ghosts, and, he's, and this whole thing with Yorick and the skull, and he stabs Polonius and says, whoops, literally, something like, oh, you, behind the curtain. And he <laughs> has this scene with his mother where he's such a terrible nag, this, 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 stone nagging that people do when they're on grass. You know, they look at this picture, look at his hair, isn't it better than his picture? Look at his eyes, look at that. And, and, and the mother really does sound like all those women who say, oh yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Oh, now I see, yes, well go to bed and we'll talk about it. <laughs> and you can actually, if you go home tonight and grab your Hamlet, you can actually track out this entire play to the end where he just kills everybody. Um, as a guy who's just had maybe bad grass. <laughs> if you, and I've often wondered, what would it be like if Oedipus were Jewish? <laughs> if, if really we now understood the true source of that line, you're killing your father. Um, there are also subjects which, they're so horrible that they are just, they're funny. And John Schlesinger was, was, going, <laughs> was going to make a movie of, uh, about the Donner Party. <laughs> which is, you know, this tragic thing where these people crash and they're starving to death and, they, you know, they die, they, they eat each other. They're, so... And, he, and he's really brooding about it, but, you know, and, he, and I, 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 I met him and he said, you know, the thing that stops me 
is that I have no idea what they would say to each other while they ate. He said, no matter what you say, he said, it's a laugh. If you say, pass me that. He said, and, and no matter who dies, you, there's some kind of laugh involved. If you go to a woman and you say, or whose husband died or froze together, and you say, Jane, Philip is gone. And she says, all gone? <laughs> he said, I, you know, he said, I wouldn't write that, but that's what comes to mind. <laughs> So, and the truth is, is that there are a lot of sort of memorials that are given for, for everyone now, for, for, and for actors, and they're, they're really the funniest, I mean, the people who give speeches at memorials give hilarious speeches because they, they somehow know that that's more endearing or they're, they're getting to speak or it's, they can't help themselves, but I, I once or twice spoke for a friend who died, and I thought, it'll take me six months. I mean, I forgot that I even liked these people who I, I just, just to write the speech for the memorial to compete with the wit that flowed seemed impossible. And the, so the other day, I was at a memorial for a really good friend of mine, a, a, an actor who, who had died, and who was chronically late. He was a great guy, but he really was always late for everything, and these with sort of simple Irish people. Uh, his family was talking, not, no, no high-powered wit. But his niece, who was about the third speaker, was crying, and she said, this is so wonderful that you're all here. She said, if, if my uncle were here today, well, he wouldn't be here yet. <laughs> and she, she said that he had once said that Punctuality is the thief of time, which I thought was very good. Um, now, after my lecture yesterday, um, uh, Sherry Prouda, the woman who, who actually said that I was talking on the art of comedy, said, you know, we had a seminar before your, your speech, and we talked a lot about about political correctness, and you didn't. And I, I realized that my lecture probably lacked depth. <laughs> but depth is easy. Comedy is hard. So... <laughs> But, but because, oh my goodness, because it's, I still have more time. <laughs> and time does fly, doesn't it? Um, um, I, I'll say a couple of things about political correctness. One of the things, I, I, I don't know if you saw A River Runs Through It, but really seriously, at the end of the movie, there's a disclaimer that says, no fish were hurt during the shooting of this movie. <laughs> so... So, it's, it's, it's very hard to know what to say about political correctness because it, I mean, we, we do tend in this country to take a precedent and make it silly. And we, we, you know, we, we, we take it so, so far out and there's nothing you can say. I mean, I, I suppose the thing about, about political correctness and how, what it does to comedy is, is it makes, it's, it's a terribly, respectful thing. I mean, you have to have a great deal of respect for anyone who's disadvantaged. So, uh, and you now have to have, and I really don't trust that. The moment there's a lot of respect coming, I think, you know, the moment people say, oh, there's a, a, the quality of life, let respect people's right to death, take those tubes out. I think, oh, I think there's, uh, must be costing them money. 
That's what I think. I think, well, now that insurance companies are running the hospitals, uh, it must be because too much respect for dying. All of a sudden, that's all I read about. And you can't make any jokes about people who are dying. You know, you, nobody can say, hey, I want to live. I really don't care how the quality of my life. So I, I'm bringing this up because, because also Sherry Proud has said, you know, if people want to talk about it or ask questions, they, it's almost like a court trial. They can't do it unless you brought it up. So I'm, I'm doing it. And, and I, but I don't have any firm opinions. I, I've noticed that you, you can't make jokes about, and I've actually made a list of it. You can't make jokes about violence, poverty, drug abuse, women, uh, children, ch uh, uh, spousal abuse, and uh, sick people, and you, you know, you, you, you have to call somebody who's, who has one leg, uh, um, I think, physically challenged or vertically uneven or whatever it is. <laughs> but, and, 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 and people are really firm about this. I mean, really outraged. But, and, and you read letters in People magazine in which they say enough of these letters about parties and movie stars. Give us more letters about the people in the trailer park who saved the squirrels. And, and you think this is... <laughs> this is a kind of... This kind of respect... You know, in a country that's pretty high up there in, in records of drug abuse and, and child abuse and, and, you know, racism and violence and, and bad education and we, you know, affirmative action has not been passed and the Equal Rights Amendment wasn't passed, health care hasn't been passed and education isn't doing so well, you think really this political correctness is instead of the money. I mean, so... <laughs> And I, if you did a comedy, if, if I were a secretary and I made a million bucks a year, even if my employer made what they make, which is like 10 million, if I made my million a year, I'd make coffee gladly. <laughs> but so I think really a lot of it is, is, is kind of, I do think it's instead of the money. I think it's, it's the redress of wrongs that doesn't cost anybody anything. It's just a lot of respect. Um, and, and this is, I, I wish I knew... Oh, I just have to tell you one thing that, I, that somebody told me. Uh, uh, William Kennedy Smith was on. They, they were doing a, I guess because of this um, Alpert case, they were doing his, his rape case. And after he was acquitted, he said, gratitude is the memory of the heart, he said to the jury and to everyone. And, you know, Anna Freud had the best definition of gratitude, which is that it's, the expectation of future favors. <laughs> and I, I, I thought to myself that, that I, I actually, I have no opinion on whether uh, William Kennedy Smith was guilty or, or, or innocent or, I, even, I don't even have an opinion on whether that girl should have gone into the room with Tyson. I think I wouldn't go into a hotel room with a great big woman. I mean, I, I, I just wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, I, I'm going to end before, be, before question and answers. I, I, I have, this, this, this is a, a true story. This is not a joke. And it's like a horror story for everybody in comedy. It, everybody knows it. It really happened, and it's it's people actually knock wood when they tell this story. There was a play many years ago called My Three Angels, and in the play was uh, Walter Slezak and and two other guys. I don't know who they were. I, I'll call them Tom and Bill. And the three guys who are playing My Three Angels are are in a bar one night, and they're and they have a huge laugh in the second act. Big, great big laugh. And the laugh comes on the line, you mean that's why we're here? And that's how Slazek reads it. And he says, you know, that laugh is amazing. To get that laugh on you mean that's why we're here, it's not a funny line. And until I found that reading for it, I don't think there was much of a laugh at all. And the guy he's with, Bill, says, you think that's why you get the laugh? 
because of your reading, and you mean that's why we're here? He says, you, you don't see what, what I do when you say that. You say, you mean that's why we're here? And I go, I do a take that's three minutes long. I go, and that's why you get the laugh. And Tom says, you know, both you guys have no idea what I do upstage. I'm in back of you when you do that. And when he gives the line and you do the take, I go, and that's what gets the laugh. My, you're both crazy gesture. And they actually get into an argument about it. And they make the following arrangement, which is that the next night, the guy who goes won't do it. And they'll see if they get the laugh. So they go on, and he says, you mean that's why we're here? And the guy does the take, and the guy upstage does nothing. And there's no laugh. The guy upstage does nothing, there's no laugh. They meet in the bar again, and, they, and Tom says, you know, I'm gonna grant you that you facilitate that laugh. But I assure you, that if I didn't do my take, you would not get the laugh on the, your take. And that night they agree he doesn't do the take. They go on, he says, you mean that's why we're here? And the guy does not do the take, but the guy upstage goes, no laugh. They meet in the bar. And Slazak says, you know, maybe both you guys are helpful to that laugh. Really, both of the things you do. But if I didn't give the reading, you mean that's why we're here? If I didn't give that reading, you wouldn't get, no matter what you did, no matter what physical thing you did, you wouldn't get the laugh. And that night they go on and Slezak says, you mean that's why we're here? And the guy does the take, and the guy upstage goes, and there's no laugh. And they meet in the bar and they agree, they have the following insight, that it's the three of them working together that get the laugh. And they go back on stage and they all three do what they've been doing. He says, you mean, that's why we're here. The guy does the take. The guy upstairs goes like this. There's no laugh. <laughs> There's never a laugh again. <laughs> they rehearse it. They time it. The stage manager gives his notes. They, they do exactly what they did. There's never a laugh. It's now, to, to anyone in comedy, because it's happened to everyone in comedy, just suddenly one night, there's no laugh. See, it's, and it's, it's almost sort of a warning thing, a warning statement, like a voodoo thing, which says don't take it apart because probably on the fourth level in some, you know, platonic dialectic, there's a reason for that laugh, but you'll never know it. <laughs> now, I'm going to end with these words of wisdom, and I'm going to ask... For any questions you want to ask me, I, I think some of them are written. And so, oh, oh, do I have more time? I've finished early, so please ask me a lot of questions. Um, these are questions that were actually asked of me before the show. This is a really serious question and a really intelligent one, so I probably won't deal with it. No, it's, how did you imagine the adaptation from Le Cage to The Birdcage, especially the political themes i.e. the right-wing conservative senator meets the gay couple. Well, I really just Americanized it. I just, uh, um, I thought, just made the, one of the gay couple Jewish so that I could make it tougher, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, I don't know what you mean. Who asked the question? Will you raise your hand? <laughs> because I don't know that I understand the question. What do you mean by how did you imagine it? You mean how did I come to it? Well, I, I mean, how I came to do it is that I, I just, I thought the original was so funny that I just couldn't fail, and it, which is really how, how I did it. And I thought it was perfect for America because it was such a righteous piece. I mean, it had so much to do with people who thought they really knew what was right. And it was, and it was a sitcom. If it had been about a man and a woman, it would be a sitcom on nightly television every night. So it was, it was pretty easy, I, I have to admit. But Ms. May? Yes? I have a question. Um, <laughs> it's God! I, up in the... <laughs> up here in the balcony, right in the center. Oh, okay. I went to the University of Chicago about the same time you did, 
And the program says you started your comedy career when you were at the University of Chicago. Could you tell us what was funny at the University of Chicago <laughs> with Robert Maynard Hutchins? Well, I, I actually came after Hutchins, so you must have been there after Hutchins, too. But I, I, he certainly seemed like... I, I always wanted to meet him. I had a terrible just crush on the idea of him. And what was fun was that everybody there was 12, because you, <laughs> you didn't have to go to high school, which, and I didn't go to high school. And they were all crazy, and every weekend, someone would, you, well, you remember, kill himself. I mean, it was just the <laughs> most neurotic place. So that really, it was sort of freeing. I mean, it was, it was fun in that there, there was nothing real to worry about. I mean, I once started a fight by saying that I thought that Socrates' apology was a political move. There was a free-for-all. I mean, it was like a bar fight, you know, like you have in the West. So it, it was just as, and I thought that was fun. <laughs> Didn't you like it? I loved it, but well, I don't think I had much sense of humor about it. Well, well, I don't know that they had a, we actually started sort of in a bar, and we started with suggestions from the audience. So since the audience saw their own suggestions improvised back, it was always their sense of humor. And maybe, I mean, I don't think we could have done typical humorous things. We, we had to do strange humorous things, but we were strange, so it worked out. <laughs> um, Thank you. Miss May. Two of my favorite things that you've done were a series of radio commercials in the 70s with Mike Nichols about Le Car, and the second was Ishtar. Could yes. you comment on both of them? Well, I did commercials with Mike, lots of them, as a matter of fact, for Kerr's Beer and for The Car and for uh, American Express. We, they were voiceovers, and that's my comment on that. And Ishtar, um, somebody asked me about Ishtar last night. I, I, I kind of like Ishtar, and the seven people who saw it liked it. <laughs> so I, I really don't know. It was the first movie that cost that much because it had two major stars, and they both, now it would be cheap, but then uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, this is the same answer I gave. I, I wish I could say something astute like it was before its time. But no, it's just this pleasant, sloppy comedy that people, or that actually the media, just loathed. And, and they kept reviewing the budget, which is really embarrassing. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm really not being coy. I actually have no idea. I can tell you why other things of mine failed. But Ishtar, I, I understand that why it failed. Why it failed so big is actually difficult to figure out. Could I ask a question? Yes. <laughs> These days, what are you looking for in a lover, and do you think you'll ever marry again? <laughs> you know, that's a little like the art of comedy. <laughs> I can't take it apart, really. It, I just, it, it just sort of has to happen. I mean... You can't, does it, it, you know, these people who say what they're looking for in a lover doesn't matter what she looks like so long as she has a sense of humor. I don't believe that. I think really, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I would be looking for somebody who's really good looking, very wealthy, really intelligent, much smarter than I am, and certainly much more attractive than I am. And it's like that. Any chance we'll get to see the outtakes from the birdcage? Who asked this question? I want to know immediately. <laughs> well, then you won't see them. If you don't admit who you are, I won't show them to you. <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's... there's, there's any... <laughs> you? <laughs> Back there? Okay, I'll get them. We'll look at them together. Are there, are there more questions? I'm just going to read them aloud blindly. Do you have any superstitious writing habits? 
uh, uh, same pen, same time of day, only after five cups of coffee, only after a corned beef sandwich. Yes, I, I, I can only work with a flare pen. Everything has to be absolutely quiet, or I have to be on the subway, one or the other. I can't have this. Um, <laughs> I will, if you'd like to have a drink after your speech, say the word good night before you leave the podium. Well, I'm not even going to read the rest. <laughs> I have a question. I'm down in the middle. Down, hi, down in the middle. Straight ahead. There you go. Okay. I can't see you, but I'm facing you. That, <laughs> we're on a vibe now. I can feel it. Um, have you ever been asked to write for episodic TV, sitcom type stuff? Uh, yeah, I have. But... Um, it's, it's, it, I think it's, very, it's a very tough way to make a living. Um, it's, uh, and it's very conscribed. I mean, I've seen people who've gotten notes from CBS. Uh, I mean, it, it would be... It, it, you'd have to have great power to write for a television show and not kill yourself. Or, or you'd have to write for something like Roseanne, where the, she had great power. Are you a television writer? Are you interested in television writing? No. Really? I just have questions. Why? Oh. And then my other question is, have you ever been asked to host Saturday Night Live? Yes. Did you? I mean, why no. didn't you? <laughs> well, um, it, it frightens me to be a host. I mean, it's, it's very nervous-making to, to go on as yourself and have your soul chore to be funny. It's, it's, it's scary. I usually, because I'm not really a stand-up comedian, I work you know, inside a scene or as a character, it just seems terrifying to me. That's why I didn't. I was too scared. Chicken. I was very scared to give this, these lectures because it's 2,000 people. And, it's, and usually when I lecture, I was, I was telling Julie that it's, this, as a teacher, it's for a class. It's for a small, concentrated group who all, you know, want to know how to do something. So this is really um, a new experience. How did you break into comedy as a writer? Well... Uh, a friend of mine asked me to write a script because I was a good comedian, and I wrote this 2,000-page script. I mean, it was... I started at the birth of the character. I went all the way through, and I, I also wrote in all the dissolves. I didn't want them to cut or do anything. I wrote in all the stage directions, and I, I sent it in. He said, you know, this is 2,000 pages. No one's even going to read this. And I... I, I went away in a huff, and then I, but I was peaked, so I wrote a shorter version of it. And then I, I uh, and then I wrote a funny script. I wrote a new leaf. And I, I had, oh. <laughs> but, but the trick of it was is that I had read it in an Alfred Hitchcock omnibus. It was a sort of a short story. And it was about a guy who was going to kill his wife, but you knew as you read this little short story that he loved her but didn't know it. And I thought, what a hard script this must be to write. So I wrote it. And, and, uh, and it took me a long time. To write the first movie script takes, for those of you who are thinking of it, it takes a long time. However, I must tell you that you can sell it. It's, it's not just a fantasy. If you write a movie script, it's possible to sell it. And those who want to know more, I'm willing to tell you how. Well, what were your words of wisdom that you said you'd tell us before the question started? Let me read this comment before from the Swami Benyananda. Um, what were my words of wisdom? Oh, that the thing that I learned from last night? Well, you heard them, but they didn't impress you. My words of wisdom were that, that you absolutely cannot discuss comedy, but that most of the time be writing something funny has to do with making something, balancing something horrible with something absolutely mundane, and the mundane thing will take precedence. I mean, if it's a really important dinner party and, and, and the chef is killed by his wife, impulse to say, can we just serve dessert and then... I mean, it's... <laughs> The issue is, is, is sort of 
Why these issues are so small, I don't know. Why they're so important, I don't know. But there is, for example, no way to tell any speaker, probably Margaret Thatcher, that it doesn't matter how her hair looks. <laughs> and you look at Margaret Thatcher's hair and you think someone has combed every hair into its right place. They've taken the day. I mean, there's just... It's, it's, this is my insight. It's not, and I don't even know if this is correct because somebody in a second can get up and say, yeah, well, what about the Three Stooges? But yeah, it, it, it needn't always be true. But I think that with the particular kind of comedy that I do, um, that that's really what I base it on. That also, that most of the stuff we hear it's like the people who write to People magazine who say, we want to hear more about the trailer park people. I mean, it's, it's not true. There's an enormous amount of peculiar moralizing that goes on almost by rote. You know, you, you just repeat it. You, you, you don't, you hear people arguing. I remember people arguing about the Simpson case. He's you know, guilty, what about Mark Furman? And they were all arguments that I had just heard on Geraldo Rivera, because I, I listened. And you thought, if I rose now and said, no, I'm, I, would, I don't believe this, I'm just making an example. I, said, I thought if I rose now and said, you know, she asked for it, I would be torn to shreds. <laughs> These people, because A, it would be a horrible thing to ask, but B, they would have no program, they would have no words to deal with this. They, I mean, nobody had, they, 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 so we're so far past that. You, you see comedies and people make really tough jokes. Saturday Night Live once had a sketch about a guy who's, I don't know how they did this, it was with Bill Murray, it was years ago. His wife had had a breast removed for cancer. This is on the show. And they had gone to a therapist because it made him feel less masculine. <laughs> and it was an absolutely hilarious sketch because weeks before, women had gone on saying, you know, I've lost my breast, but I still feel feminine, but I don't feel feminine, but I will feel feminine. I had a breast, but a breast isn't that important, but my and, and it was all, what really was moving, it was so, it went on and on and on, and it was one woman after another. Every woman who had ever lost her breast, or both breasts, was, was on television. And, and it became such a highly sensitive thing that I think Bill Murray felt he had to do it. <laughs> and I think when something becomes sensitive enough, you just want to break it. <laughs> I, 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 or, or am I wrong? <laughs> I, I, I can't go farther than that. And I won't go farther than that. I'm going to, I think, we, I, I think, I think we've been here for most of our lives. And now... <laughs> I'm going to thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. That was Elaine May speaking at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast. Special thanks to the literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor. And this has been another edition of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.